Hi and welcome to the Journalism Salute. I'm Mark Simon. In each episode, we'll talk to or about an interesting person or organization related to journalism. The intent is to show that journalists are not the enemy of the people. Thank you for listening. My guests today are George Bugadu Makoko and Katherine Harrison, the co-founders of Amjambo Africa. That's A-M-J-A-M-B-O Africa.com. George is the publisher. Katherine is the editor-in-chief. This is a monthly newspaper and website devoted to covering issues important to the African immigrant community in Maine. It also educates Maine residents to better understand the African emigration to their state. It is free and available in six languages, English, French, Kenya, Rwanda, Portuguese, Swahili, and Somali. And it has sections covering news, opinion, education, finance, and culture. It began publishing in April, 2018. George, you came to Maine in 2002. Can you explain how you came to live in the state and then your path to starting a newspaper and the Ladder to the Moon Network in addition to your professional work? Thank you, Mark. I was born in DRC Congo and I grew up there and then uh, due to the uh, uh, war, I moved to Rwanda after genocide in 1994, and I came here in 2002. And when I moved here, I desperately need information, uh, not only how I should not be able to navigate the system here in America, but also I, I was also in need of information from back home, what's happening there and I couldn't find any information here. And it really bothered me for a very long time. And until uh, we were able to start the newspaper, and it's interesting how I met Kathleen, uh, a, a kid, uh, and I was doing a presentation of my book that I published back in 2013, which was called Ladder to the Moon, A Journey from the Congo to America. And when I was doing presentation at public library, she approached me and said that we have a family from Congo here and we, it's very hard to communicate with them because we can't speak the language. And she invited me at that time, she was teaching uh, at the elementary school and she invited me to be there and talk to uh, her students. And after talking, uh, she engaged me and said, so what are you planning to do? What is your project? And I say, I have a crazy idea of starting newspaper and but yet I don't know how to do it. And we started engaging and how we can do it and for almost a year and until we were able to come up with the first issue, which was published uh, on April 1st, 2018. So that's a long uh, story sh cut short. <laughs> <laughs> had, you ever, uh, had you ever done anything journalistically before you started the newspaper? Not at all. Uh, my background is in business. I have never thought that even once that I would be able to be involved in journalism. But when I came here, it was just out of a desperate need of uh, sharing information to the immigrant population, but also to the American. Because when I came here, one of the things that shocked me was the fact that few people knew what happened in DRC Congo. And just to give you perspective, for the last 20 years, more than 5.4 million people have died as a result of the, of the conflict. That's like just like a wiping out the whole population of Maine and New Hampshire and the Connecticut in just 20 years. So when I came here, few people knew what happened there. And I was just saying, wait a minute, 
we've lost almost everything, but yet the world don't know about it. So my goal from then became like, how can I, where is the awareness of what's happening in, uh, in Congo and, and also Great Lakes region of Central Africa? Catherine, I know that you, uh, he mentioned that you've been a teacher. Can you take us through your career path? And was there something in your background that made co-founding this newspaper personal to you? Thank you, Mark, for having us and for asking these interesting questions. So yes, I was a teacher for many years and my career in education ended with French teaching. So that is one step of this journey. It was because I spoke French that I met George, actually. Um, he came to speak to French classes in my school kind of a long relationship with journalism in that I was born into a family of journalists. So I was raised in the industry, basically. We were posted, well, we, I say we, my father was posted abroad. So I remember from a very early age, at that time, it was, what it was telex, I guess. It was, anyhow, stories were transmitted by <laughs> wire, and it was just a wild and crazy ride. I remember my brother once asked my father, can't you find another way to earn a living? <laughs> because it was quite disruptive to family life. But it was fascinating. And anyhow, it awakened in me a passion for learning about the world, for educating others about the world, for being open to the world. So that combined with my kind of education bent, my language bent, you know, I think is, is part of what fueled this. I was, as an educator, involved in writing for the papers, I had a blog and I had a column um, in several local papers, and I didn't actually ever expect to be this deeply involved in journalism, but it has been very wonderful and fascinating, and I'm enjoying it enormously. So Portland, Maine uh, is among the cities that in particular have become a central place for Africans to come to, often for asylum seekers who have taken harrowing journeys that take many months, uh, I was reading about one. And the mayor of Portland was on a video that your, your uh, group put out. He's been outspoken about the city needing to be welcoming to people. What experience have you had, George, and uh, Catherine, you can certainly uh, discuss this as well. What experience have you had in Portland, Maine, and why has that city in particular been appealing to a lot of people to come to? Yeah, my experience uh, here in Portland, Maine, has been very good. I will say that because uh, uh, when I came here in 2002, there were barely few. I mean, no, 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 no people from the Africa. There were just few. Maybe I could count uh, from the Great Lakes re region of Central Africa. But in 2005, we started seeing an increase of a number of coming from the Burundi, Rwanda, and Congo. And I think most of the things that attracted them here was the fact that the, the city is very welcoming and, and also provide probably more assistance than other cities around this, the, the state, but also around the country. And that's very important because for me, uh, Maine is aging uh, state. Uh, I, don't, I don't know if you know this, but it's one of the oldest uh, state in, in America. And, and one of the ways that I can... Uh, uh, help you know populate this the state is uh, welcoming the immigrants and there's one thing that I always say that to people that you know when Africa because of the conflict and war in Africa they are losing their best they are losing skills they are losing uh, talents and and when we we when men is lucky to have them here they should embrace them with open arms because 
what the, uh, the continent of Africa is losing, but yet man is gaining them. So uh, it's, I think it's a, it's a good thing. And uh, I'm glad uh, I've had a good experience with people, with the, the system. So I'm, I'm just uh, grateful that I'm here. And many people have found also that this uh, man to be a safe place to live. Now, I know that your, your newspaper focuses very much on the positive aspects of this, but it's not always the case. I know that in Lewiston, Maine, uh, that the mayor resigned uh, back in, in 2018. What are some of the challenges that, that you and other people have come across in trying to uh, assimilate? Yeah, some of the challenges that we face, uh, more, I will probably uh, categorize them into, the, the language barrier is one of them. So when you're coming here, or for instance, when I came here, I was already, uh, I just completed my college. And, and when I came here, I had to start all over again. It was like a baby be born again and started learning how to speak. So language is a very, very challenging. And the other things, when, how do you find a community, a new community when you've lost your own community back home where you are comfortable, you knew people around, you knew who to talk when you have an issue. But when you're coming here, all that becomes so new that you don't know who to talk to, you don't know where to go to find resources. And, and the other thing is finding housing is another thing. How do you, the system here is very complex and different, like a banking, it's everything becomes like so new that you don't know where to start. So yeah, there's a lot of challenges that we talk about. One of them is a barrier, language barrier is a key. It's a very important, and also housing, finance. I mean, the banking and finding the the resources when you need them. It's just uh, a lot for someone who just come in a new place. Catherine, what have you uh, seen uh, from the other end of things uh, in terms of uh, people being welcoming and people trying to help? Uh, these African uh, people adjust? Actually, it's, it's quite interesting. We are a statewide publication and um, Portland and Lewiston are certainly the major places where people are living who are coming here from other, other countries. Um, but I was teaching in a small town in Maine and was shocked by the sort of provincialism and the lack of awareness of other people um, and what they might be bringing that was positive to the state. There was a lot of closed-mindedness, um, some racial, you know, language that was disturbing. I realized Maine needed to, uh, Mainers needed to learn more about the world, and that's partly why I wanted to participate in this newspaper. You know, the state is very large, it's geographically large and sparsely populated in many areas, and those are the areas that were trying to trying to reach um, in addition to the cities. So there's, there's definitely some education that needs to be done. And um, one thing that I can add, Mark, if I may. Sure. Just, uh, the, um, like uh, Kit just said, it's, it's a very, uh, people who are uh, afraid of immigrants, uh, afraid of new people coming in and thinking they're coming in to take the resources and thinking that just going to, be there and be supported by the government. They're, they're very wrong. And I think one of the ways that we've been trying to do is educating uh, the, the mainstream America about the advantages of having immigrants here. And they are business created, they created businesses, they, are, they, they pay millions of, 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 of taxes and all that. So 
and when people don't know all that, they just lean on their own thinking and, you know, you know, the fear of the unknown. It's just, who are these people? Where are they coming from? And why are they here? And what are they going to do? And so I think we've played a, a huge role in, in terms of educating the mainstream and trying to show them these are just nice people who are finding a new home and who just want to you know, support their families and, and be part of the, the, the economy. So I think it's been uh, quite uh, mind-opening to see that some people who read and get to know them, they amazed how people, how it's good to have them here. Okay, so let's explain the mechanics of the, of the education process from your, your perspective. Tell us about the paper, how often it publishes, how big it is, how many readers you have, and how it has evolved. So we publish monthly a print edition of the paper. Two and a half years ago when we launched, we started with a tiny 16-page paper. We've grown now to 28 pages. We're hoping to add um, some more pages in the near future. We reach... Uh, 15,000 people through the print edition, and those are distributed in different ways, in small coffee shops and markets, as well as supermarkets and libraries. COVID, of course, has had a big impact in that. We've started inserting the paper into um, two mainstream newspapers, the Portland Press-Herald and the Bangor Daily News, to reach a broader audience, and that has been very effective. We also have an active website, so our news website publishes constantly, and um, we have a lot of traffic to that website. So, you know, we've got both of those things going, and we have a very small staff. So it's a it's a labor of love, and um, <laughs> it's it's growing. We're getting all kinds of feedback from many many different kinds of audiences, and that's part of what's so exciting about this. Welcome to Journalism History, a podcast that rips out the pages of your history books to re-examine the stories you thought you knew and the ones you were never told. I'm Terry Finneman, and I research media coverage of women in politics. And I'm Nick Hershon, and I research the history of New York sports. And I'm Ken Ward, and I research the journalism history of the Great Plains and Rocky Mountains. Find the Journalism History Podcast at journalism-history.org slash podcast and wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. How do you come up with story ideas? So there's no problem coming up with story ideas. There's many more stories to write than we could possibly tell given our capacity. Um, so partly it's by knowing lots of different people and chatting about what's going on, um, following social media to see what everybody's doing and what everybody's thinking about. Obviously, the past year has been consumed by issues of systemic racism and by issues related to COVID. We're trying to do so much. We're trying to provide practical, helpful advice, like how do you stay safe in the middle of this pandemic if you are a frontline worker, which many of our readers are. But we're also trying to tell inspirational stories of successes and those I, you know, basically find through word of mouth. So those are, those are two two ways we come up with stories. For each of you, is there a story that you've published recently that you're particularly proud of? Yeah, um, uh, there's so many stories that we're very proud of, but uh, recently we just launched uh, a new, I would say it's like a new project where we're trying to get correspondence from uh, Africa, from each corner of Africa. So hoping to get someone from West, East, and North and South and also Center. And we just got one from 
a correspondent from Chad, and I give a shout out to Vincent Kende Niebed, who just published an article about Boko Haram, how it all started and how it grew, and of course, the, regrettably, the damages that they have caused. But I was just, uh, when I was reading it, I could sense a very great knowledge uh, of the, you know, the, the ground, the issue on the ground, and somebody who's lived it, who's seen it, and who's telling it in a way that nobody else can tell it. And when I read it, I said, wow, this is a very, uh, very interesting. And I was so proud that we can be that source of information here in America. And you know, the terrorism movement, it's very popular here in America. They're always looking, I think it's a bad word. Everybody's using terrorists, but it's good that we can be that source of information, knowing of just telling the story from the ground and like nobody else can tell it. So I was very, very proud about that. And, and we, are, we are also looking, just got another story from uh, uh, a correspondent based in Nairobi, Kenya. And he was just describing in very meticulous way the impact of COVID-19 to women and the girls, uh, girls in Africa. And he was able to cover Kenya, Uganda, Rwanda, and Congo. And I was so moved by those stories. and. And if, again, our job is to raise awareness and hoping that if somebody sees the needs that are being seen through the stories that we're sharing and is able to meet the needs, it's very important. So I was very, very proud. And early in the pandemic, we became aware that there was a disconnect in Maine between how the virus was impacting communities of color and community and white communities. and we were able to publish a series of articles that highlighted the heavy impact on communities of color and the efforts of immigrant-led groups to address those inequities. Nobody else was talking about that. And in fact, I think we were pretty important in bringing together the government response and um, the help um, that small, community-based organizations were providing to communities of color. So I felt like that, you know, we, we really helped to move the needle on the response of the state because we've, we've now moved from a state that had literally the worst, um, the worst discrepancy between how the virus was affecting white and, pe and people of color um, communities to a little bit less drastic now. And that has really been because of the step up in working directly with immigrant-led organizations. And I feel that our coverage helped to establish that network. It's wonderful that the organization can have such power, uh, despite the fact that, as he said, you're, you're small in size. Some other stories that have uh, been on your site recently, just to give people kind of a snapshot, you profiled a high school freshman basketball coach from Sudan. You spotlighted a community children's book program, a mural project in Portland. And then there are things you were talking about, like life skills type things, explanations of what insurance is and things uh, related to financial education. Um, I'm curious, just segueing to something else. Uh, I know that you wrote uh, something about this. What was it like to be the founders of this publication from November 3rd to November 12th when uh, your your publication had a editorial about the presidential election? Yeah, so, so I mean, November, this year election was uh, was just 
different and we all agree i think we can all agree on that and one of the uh, the way it was different was the fact that many people throughout the pandemic people were afraid to go out and vote but they also find a way of um, voting through mailing and that led to the fact that the elections can could not that mean they could not get all the results in the same night or the same day that we normally do and so it was dragged for two days and the anxiety the whole uh, process brought to people and people were sleeping with their cell phone on their under the pillow uh, waking up in the middle of the night checking the results and see if there's more information it was just like a different and i remember one on saturday when everything was done and public you know they were able to come up with the final result i hosted a, a zoom conference and with people from europe africa and i was just amazed how the every the whole world was following and and the same level of pressure of knowing what's going to happen here on the ground here in america was the same in africa and other uh, countries so this year was different and and i was just uh, shocked by so many responses that we're getting from people and say oh this is just see it's different and there's a lot of anxiety here but uh, uh, at the end, everything you know went well, and so we're, we're happy that we're able to get the result, and we know who won the elections. What was the message that you wanted to convey? So the message is that I realize how people, you know, for, from people who grew up in Africa and who've seen the elections, that after elections, there's always trouble, there's always unrest, and people killing each other and fighting over the, the result, and oh, uh, this won, this, this, and all that. I was afraid that it was going to happen here in America. And I wrote my editorial and I said that I, I, more, I even more realized how our democracy is very fragile and we have to keep it and really uh, neutral the, 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 you know, the democracy to a way that we can't afford to lose it. So my message is that we, we have to stay true to our democratic system, but also true to ourselves and also knowing that we should not just take it for granted. We have to keep and protect it, the democracy that we have here. Yep, definitely do not take it for granted. Uh, the, the organization's masthead is a little different than most. I noticed that you have five translators and a poetry editor, among other things, that being things that other places might not have. Can one of you tell us about your staff? Well, we have a terrific uh, staff. And as you mentioned, we have five translators, um, they are all immigrants from somewhere else. Um, our poetry editor is um, a guy who lives in a smallish city here in Maine. And the reason we have a poetry editor is partly because we have some really amazing immigrant poets. And it's another way to reach people. You know, the arts do reach people in a, in a different way than your traditional journalism story. So we felt it was important to include um, that and we, we publish one poem per issue. We've also put some energy into beginning to create a pipeline of immigrant writers who want to, who might have a journalism background from their home country, but have not ever worked in the United States in the journalism industry. And we're, we're doing some freelance um, work with some different individuals who are basically getting some credits through working with us who are learning how we do things here because, you know, all countries do things differently. 
And so that's something we're proud of. And that's part of our, I would consider those people part of our staff. Um, you know, we're looking, by the way, for more people of color, immigrants who have some background in journalism who'd like to learn the ropes of how to do things here. So we're always accepting writing samples and resumes from, from well, from everybody, but from that group in particular. Okay, so that's fascinating to me. I'm curious, is there an example uh, for someone of what they, uh, they might have done differently somewhere else that they're learning to kind of transfer over here? Well, it's really interesting to read stories that are written by someone, for example, who has a French background, a French-speaking background um, in Africa, uh, rather than in English. It's a different style of writing. It's um, <laughs> and it and it's um, it's very it's based on absolutely based on fact. In fact, I would say there's a there's a heavier emphasis on data and um, fact and. Uh, not as much editorializing as tends to creep into um, U.S. articles these days. Um, what uh, What are some of the the goals for the group for the future? That's an interesting question. And so, and then before I go to that, I, I, I'm coming back to your previous question. Is just like without the uh, the diligence and the hard working of our staff this project would never be possible because it takes a lot of work. You can imagine, like some other newspaper, all the world is just getting the story and writing in English and done. But for us, you get a story and put it in six languages and, and all that it takes to, to translate and, and, and also like Kit was just saying, uh, trying to find, this is, if the article was written in French and then you gotta make sure they put it in a very contextual way in English and all that. So it's a lot of work and uh, shout out to all our staff, translators and kids who's been on front line and everybody involved, but also the whole support that we received from our sponsors and everybody. But also uh, uh, coming back to the vision that we have, we trying to make sure that we are number one source of information from Africa. And that's something that working hard now with our correspondent from the continent we're hoping that will be the number one source of information uh, here in America from Africa. So, and this is something that I mentioned before, that when you're coming here, there's a lot happening in Af on African continent, but yet they're, they're covered, they are not covered here in the many outlets. So we hope that we can be that source of information here. But also uh, our, our organization is based on uh, raising the awareness. So we want to cover uh, as much as many stories as possible, because we believe that everybody has a story to tell, and we want to be able to reach to them to as many people as possible, so that their stories can be also heard. So, yeah, we have a bigger vision here, but again, we hope that we can get the resources to to get that vision out. Are there any other publications that you consult with? Are there any other publications like this one? Well, we are part of the um, Institute for Nonprofit News, which, as you know, has um, about 300 other community, mostly community-based nonprofit outlets. And so we are, we absolutely network with those frequently. We're also in touch with the Black Media Initiative out of CUNY, um, City University of New York, where there's a really interesting variety of um, 
papers mostly geared to the African-American community, but some focused on Somalia or Ethiopia. I have yet to encounter another publication that tries to reach such a broad um, group of readers. Our readership is really, you know, everybody from very recent immigrants to native Mainers who've been here for generations. So it's, it's complex tax um, and somewhat unique, I think. We also have some partnership going on with the Bangor Daily News and the Portland Press Herald, both of, both of which um, reach, you know, together they reach the whole state of Maine, the, main, the mainstream readers. So those are, our, those are our networks at this time. And as I mentioned, I have yet to come upon another publication exactly like ours, but there are certainly communities of like-minded places. It's impressive how much you've been able to do in, in two years. So for the pay it forward aspect of uh, the conversation, two last questions. What lessons have you learned, or maybe it's just one piece of advice from each of you that you would give to someone who, create, who wanted to create a publication like yours? Yeah, the lesson that we learned, <laughs> maybe I can go, uh, it's just like we did not know uh, how much text to run a newspaper when we came in. We were driven by the passion of just let's cover the immigrant issues, let's raise the awareness of the conflict from, 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 Af- the, uh, from in Africa and let's do this and this. And we just like carried on by the mission and we missed the sight of what text to do the, to run the paper. So when we got into it, we realized that there was a lot. I remember the first publication, uh, we started by just publishing in four languages, which are French, English, Miranda, and Swahili. And I was able, because I do speak several languages and I could translate, uh, translate materials in Swahili and French and Kinyaranda. I almost went crazy the first night. And, mm-hmm. and so what I can, the advice that I can give to anybody is just know what you're going, going into and prepare yourself and gather all the resources necessary so that you're not just uh, collapsing at the first publication. So that's the advice that I can give. Maybe Keith has more. Well, I think, you know, we are part of this nonprofit news movement and it is, I think it's the, it's the future of journalism. As such, one really needs partners, supporters, um, a, a wide network in, in the communities that you're working in. And, you know, to the extent that those can be created before launch, I would suggest doing that. Of course, as one is working, you just meet more and more people and it, it all expands, but um, laying that groundwork of, of really being based in community, um, I think is, is crucial for success. And um, the nonprofit model requires, you know, a different kind of business approach than relying purely on advertising. You know, the classifieds used to be such a big way to sustain newspapers and they're not anymore. Um, anyhow, it's, it's, it's really knowing, knowing how to be grounded business-wise as well as just developing lots and lots of relationships. Being trustworthy is, is key. Um, I've learned that, you know, I think I think I absorbed that growing up in the household I did um, with a journalism father who had a big reputation for being open 
to other points of view than his own or than America's. But I think, you know, that earning the trust of people is really, really important. My last question uh, is just, um, I wanted to offer a chance for each of you to give another journalism organization that you would like to salute. Well, for me, I, I really think the Institute for Nonprofit News is a wonderful organization and, um, you know, working, working together in collaboration with others, one has much more strength. So I'd love to give a shout out to that organization. Yeah, I will just allude to Kit and saying that uh, Institute of uh, Institute of Non-Profit News is a very good uh, organization, and we we appreciate their support. But also, one thing that I really came to realize, not, not coming from a journalism background, I realized how important journalism is in terms of informing the public and in terms of uh, digging stories out there, and you know, technically holding accountable to private and, and public sectors and making sure that people are informed. And I think it's, it's a very good uh, uh, mission here. And I give a shout out to every journalist who's there out there and looking for stories and, and making them available to the public. The journalism community certainly needs all the support it can get. Thank you for uh, taking the time to join me. You're welcome, Mike. Thank you for having us. Yeah, thank you so much. It was a pleasure. One thing I didn't ask... What does Amjambo mean? It's a word of greeting in Swahili, the equivalent of hello or good morning, as you would say in the Democratic Republic of Congo. I should also explain how this interview happened. I was on the Institute for Nonprofit News website looking for future guests. They have a 16-page directory with names and logos for all these great news organizations. And Amjambo Africa greeted me on page one, intriguing because of its unusual name. A serendipitous find I'm glad I found it. The Journalism Salute is dedicated to the memory of Dr. Robert Cole, who taught at my alma mater, Trenton State College, the College of New Jersey, for more than 30 years. He influenced hundreds of future journalists. I remember I first encountered Dr. Cole at an open house. During a Q&A, my future roommate's father asked if the journalism program would be welcoming to sports writers. Dr. Cole practically jumped out of his chair. It had been a few years since he'd been asked that, and he was ecstatic that aspiring sports writers coming to the school was a possibility. It was quite a greeting. I haven't done this yet on this podcast. I want to give a shout-out to a group that's hurting a bit now, a journalism group, D3 Sports. For those unfamiliar with the different levels of college sports, NCAA Division Three is no scholarship. These are student-athletes who are students first, athletes second. They don't have private jets, super stadiums, crazy boosters, TV deals. The students are playing because they love sports. The D3 Sports family of websites has covered Division Three for more than 20 years. They're an important part of what Division Three is. They tell stories that are worth learning about. I wrote and broadcast for them in the early days of their website. It barely paid, but it was great experience. I got a lot of practice interviewing. I got to broadcast national championships, and I had a great editor in Pat Coleman. Division three is one of many things that the pandemic has basically shut down. This isn't the SEC or Big Ten that can strong arm its way into playing. The Division three schools don't have the resources to play, and they know that it's largely not a great idea to play. The D3 sports sites have lost 93% of their traffic because there's no D3 sports. This isn't some huge for-profit enterprise. No one's making big bucks here. They're hurting, and they could use a little help. 
If you're in the donating spirit this holiday season, by all means, donate to places that support essential healthcare workers and other entities that need it. But if you have a little left over, head over to d3hoops.com or d3football.com and send it their way. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Journalism Salute. If you're interested in following along with us, follow us on Twitter at Journalism Salute, S-A-L-U-T. There are more episodes to come. Thank you for tuning in.